Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. There is something beautiful and romantic about the sea, right? Can we just sort of agree on that? Can I lay that out there? It's, it's pretty a random way to start, but we're just jumping in. I don't know what it is. It feels like there's just something that sort of draws you to it, and we're in this landlocked state, and so maybe I just have too much nostalgia about it, and I'm thinking, like, you know, it's better than it really is. And yet I think, like, you know, you kind of feel like anywhere you could go, you could, you know, just getting on the sea, like the possibilities are endless, right? I think that's why we have this such a, like, cultural kind of romance about the sea. Now, I should preface this by saying I've never really been on the sea, right? Like, I think I've been to the ocean, to the beach, that kind of thing. Read Moby Dick a couple times. I've watched all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That's about my seafaring experience right there. I know it's not significant, but it feels like there's a lot. Uh, there's this poem, actually, that I really empathize with, having never seen the sea or never really been on it. All right, it's this poem by John Macefield. It says, I must go, or I must down to the seas again, to the lonely sea in the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And I've never done that. But I can fully appreciate that feeling, right? Like this urge to go and visit, you know, some, some far off land, this place of adventure, this place of like, you know, like I said, you can get anywhere in the world. Now, I know I could like visit one. I could like go on some sort of touristy like little cruise or something like that. But I feel like the, the only option for me left at this point is really just hopping on a boat and sailing around the world. I think that's my only way that I'm going to actually satisfy this impulse. Now, again, very little experience. I'm not really sure how, how greatly the Pirates of the Caribbean would translate in that scenario. And I'm not sure that Sarah's down for me to take a six, she's shaking her head no she says no to that one uh maybe i'll retire to the sea who knows i don't really know anyway i clearly don't know much about seafaring and i hope you gathered that from this intro that was a long intro about seafaring which i don't know anything about uh but i do know that it's very important while you're seafaring to actually like keep a good eye on where you're at think about this uh the gps global positioning system you guys are aware of what that is you have phones uh, that really was not invented all that long ago, which means that for like vast periods, for the majority of human history, we have taken to the sea with nothing better than the stars in the sky, maybe a compass, uh, you know, following north to south, east to west, that kind of stuff. That's about the best that we can do, I think. And yet people have traveled forever. Now, I want you to think about this. If you were like heading out, if it was you and you left the, you know, the UK or something and you were trying to head towards America, if you got just slightly off on your compass heading, if you got just like a little bit turned around, you could end up in Canada or in Mexico or in the Bermuda Triangle or, uh, I've seen pictures of people like, you know, sailing right off the edge of the world, I think is how it works, right? Like there's this hard edge and, you know, at least in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that happens. Again, most of my experience is there. Like, if you just have this minor little sort of like drifting one way or the other, you can end up like so far off the edge of the map, so far off your target that you can't even like figure out how you got there. And it's interesting too, while Hebrews was being written back in those days, uh, People had not really sailed that far. Obviously, uh, America had not been discovered. Can you imagine living in a time with no Colorado? I mean, it just didn't even exist for people. And so uh, they had no idea about this, but they sailed around the Roman world a lot. It was like a big sort of time for trade among different uh, countries, or I guess Rome sort of ran everything. And so there's a lot of like free and open trade around the Mediterranean. And yet, 
during that time, for the most part, sailors did not even leave sight of shore. Like, so terrified were they of the wide open seas and of getting lost and of being just sort of like, you know, out there forever in the unknown. They have no idea where they're going to end up. That they would not even leave sight of land. Sailing for them back then was, for the most part, just sort of like, okay, we're going to keep Greece to our right. And if we get a few miles offshore or if a big storm kicks up, we'll probably die. And that was kind of like the only sense of what you could do back then. Back then, uh, they were just starting to get into some, like, celestial navigation. We still don't even quite understand all of the things that they were actually doing to navigate themselves around the world. But this is kind of like the setting in which the author of Hebrews writes this. And his first little uh, admonition here in, verse, or in chapter 2 and verse 1 was actually a nautical term. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He says that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we sail right past it and get lost. This is sort of the imagery there that he's conjuring with this word of drift. He's saying like, okay, so we must stick really, really closely to this, or else the currents, the sea, everything else around us will carry us right past us. The language here is subtle and slow. It's not like a, you know, you're following what you once heard and then all of a sudden you just decide to change complete directions. No, it is just a drifting kind of term. The idea is that we would drift slowly off course from what we first believed. This happens far too easily. I think if you think about your life, if you think about like just sort of going along in your normal, average, everyday life, it's easy to drift off course. We've all experienced this, right? You commit to a new way of living, you're sailing along, and then you drift further and further away from it. It happens every time you start a diet, right? You're like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And then all of a sudden you're like, cheeseburgers are also great. And you sort of drift a little bit further. You don't give up on your dreams that you've had, you know, for a long time. You don't give up on those in a day, right? It happens slowly. Over time, you get distracted, you get redirected. Your political beliefs don't change instantly most of the time. They slowly shift and change as you're pulled in different directions. Marriages don't end in like a momentary, one-moment decision. They drift further and further apart from where they were. And the author of Hebrews is saying that we cannot allow that to happen in following Jesus. He's saying that we cannot allow ourselves to so slowly drift away from what we had first heard. He says this in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. This is the old way. He's saying, hey, uh, by the way, you remember, this is the message that was given to you by the angels, which uh, for the author of Hebrews means, generally speaking, the Old Testament. He's saying this is the meat or this is the uh, the way in which the old the angels gave you the old message. This is the Old Testament. This is the old way of life. Right. Uh, he's saying that this message is simple and we have seen it to be reliable. We have seen that it is trustworthy and it is true. It's proven reliable. It's very simple that every sin and every transgression and every disobedience re receives a just retribution. So what does that mean exactly? Basically, the old message was this, that God is a just God. That when we do wrong against each other, when we do wrong against him, when we do wrong even against ourselves, that he is a just God to stand up against that evil. And we are meant to see, receive just retribution. 
In fact, this word retribution is a really difficult one to translate for us uh, because it basically just means getting exactly what you deserve, right? Retribution for us sounds like a really evil thing. But basically, the author of Hebrews is saying, like, if you do something wrong, something wrong will happen to you. You receive a just retribution. God set up the world, and it was good. He set it up the way that he wanted it to be. And he gave us the opportunity to participate actively in this good world, and we chose another direction. We chose to be in opposition to that goodness. And because of that, we receive our just payment for that. God in his kindness gave us the freedom to choose good or evil. And starting with Adam and Eve and going all the way to you, we pretty often choose evil. I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm saying even myself. We very often choose evil. And because of that, we receive a just retribution. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. The old way, the message that had proven to be reliable is very simply that we get what we deserve. That we've seen this world, we know how it works, and because of that, people do wrong and they get what they deserve. But then he continues on and he asks, what if there were another way? Like, what if there were a new system that was not based on that at all? And he says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness and by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed them according to his will. He says that the Lord, Jesus, declared this good news, and then it was attested to by the apostles or those who had heard, Then it was finally proven through signs and wonders and miracles that the church, through the Holy Spirit, was actually living out this truth. So he asked, how shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? Basically, he's saying, how shall we escape if we drift away from what we have been heard, which is this new message? And this new message is different from the old message in that it's saying, like, Jesus steps into this old message, right? We said last week that uh, for the author of Hebrews, the Old Testament's kind of like the scaffolding, and Jesus is kind of like the new building that uh, God is creating throughout time. And so Jesus steps into the scaffolding, this old way where you got exactly what you deserve, and he steps in and says, what if there is another way? Now, instead of getting what you deserve, I will take what you deserve, I will take what you are supposed to get, and I will give to you what I deserve. This is very simply the message of the gospel. That the old way of living, the way that we're all born into, and the way that we normally operate is that you get exactly what you deserve. You get just punishment. You get just retribution for the, for the wrong things that we are all actively doing against ourselves, against each other, and against God. Jesus steps into that and builds something new out of that broken system. Jesus steps into that and takes all of our ugliness, all of our brokenness, all of our sin and pain and death that we bring to the situation. And he says, I will exchange that for my good news. I will exchange all of that for eternal life. I will exchange all of that for an innocence that you could never earn, that you could never buy, that you could never live out yourself. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that we have to be so extremely careful that we don't drift away from that. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, okay, uh, 
that's really good news, right? Like, this is life eternal. This is the good stuff. We're getting something that we don't deserve. We're not no longer surrounded or sort of suffocated by this old system. And because of that, we're actually able to take part in something that we don't deserve, which is God's good eternal life. This is the good message of the gospel. How in the world would I drift away from that? How in the world would I leave that? And yet I think it happens. There's a scene in uh, Moby Dick, actually, that rings true here. I figure I'd stick with the nautical theme if that's all right for him. <clears throat> Where uh, the narrator says this, Ishmael says this. <clears throat> Never dream with thy hand on the helm. Oh, yeah, by the way, it's kind of pirate speak. So you'll have to listen up really closely. Sorry. Never dream with thy hand on the helm. Turn not back. Or, ah, it's backwards pirate speak, too. Sorry. Turn not thy back to the compass. Accept the first hint of the hitching tiller, and believe not the artificial fire, when its redness makes all things look ghastly. Tomorrow, in the natural sun, the skies will be bright. Those who glared like devils in the forking flames, the morn will show in far other, less gentler relief, the glorious, golden, glad sun, the only true lamp. All others are but liars." Now, in case uh, you don't care anything about Moby Dick, which is totally acceptable, or uh, you're not a 18th century whaling seaman, uh, basically what he's saying there is that when you are sailing on the sea, you cannot get distracted or taken off course. He's sort of giving an ad admonition there uh, to himself, actually, in this scene where he's actually holding on to the steering of the ship. He's actually driving the ship. You have to keep focused on that one thing, that only one true lamp, which I think for us is the gospel. So then, I think I want to take this quote, uh, and I want to pick it apart to death, and I know no one cares about it as much as I do, but I think it gives us some good framework. Now, I should warn you, uh, first off, that Moby Dick is not any C.S. Lewis books, right? Like, C.S. Lewis is out there with some heavy-handed allegory. I don't even know if Herman Melville was a Christian, but in this case, he actually gets it, okay? So let's just break this down and take a look at what he's actually saying here about not losing sight on what is in front of him, not losing sight on heading in the right direction while you're steering this ship. First, he says, turn not thy back, thy back on the compass. Turn not thy back on the compass. He's saying here that you have to keep your eye on the compass so that you know which direction you're actually heading. That is to say, in the words of the author of Hebrews, that you must pay closer attention to the gospel to which you have heard. The gospel which is the climax of the entire story of scripture, and indeed the climax of the entire story of humanity. Paul says it this way, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And you know why this is so necessary? It's because we all drift off course. Without giving ourselves something to look at, something to do, we're all drifting. I ask this question a lot of times of why do plants die in our house? Right? Like we've tried to figure this out. We just can't keep plants. Our, our house is like a mausoleum, like, a, like we're honoring these dead plants or something like that. I mean, it's just brown and nasty very often. And we try to figure it out, like, is it, you know, poor air quality? Do we have some, like, species of invasive fly or something like that? Is it a malignant spiritual force? And I've come to a, a conclusion that I think is difficult for me to accept, but I have to. It is that we don't water these plants. That's the secret. 
it's nothing bad, right? Like it's nothing like, you know, secret and, and then sneaky and wrong. Nothing's wrong with our house. Nothing's wrong with us. We are just people who don't water our plants, right? We don't pay attention enough to say, hey, we should actually do this every single day. We don't actually keep our eyes on watering our plants. You know why most marriages fail? If we can head in a completely different direction. Hopefully it's not because of dead plants. At least that has not been the case thus far. It's not because on your wedding day you're thinking to yourself like, okay, I'll marry this one person and, you know, everything will be okay for a while. Then I'll get really into my job. Then I'll, you know, meet somebody else. Then I'll do something else. No. It's over the course of time. Nobody's planning to sort of ruin someone else's life on their wedding day. It's over the course of time when you take your eye off the compass and start to drift away. You start to drift apart and you turn away, turn around after a while and you say to yourself, how have I gotten myself here? The exact same thing is true here. Without a steady diet of scripture and spiritual habits and postures and rhythms, or even just the steady sort of regular act of participating in a worship gathering, we all are prone to slowly drifting off course. Next, Melville says to watch out for the hitching tiller. Now, the hitching tiller, you guys all know what that is, of course, right? Uh, it's pretty uh, absurd, right? Uh, especially if you're just an imaginary sailor like myself, but I can explain. Uh, the tiller is the way that you drive the boat. Now, normally, you'd have like this big cool ship with all the little spikes on the side, or this cool wheel with all the spikes on the side, uh, but in Moby Dick, they drive this old school boat, and so they have a tiller. You might have seen it in like a little like motor boat, right? You have this little stick that sort of uh, guides where you're going. And as you would sail through a tossing ocean, I'm regretting this analogy as much as all of you are. I'm sorry. Let's just push all the way through. Anyway, uh, here we go. As you're sailing through a tossing ocean, it would normally like bump and hitch and you're sort of moving around, moving along. Uh, think about the waves are sort of going this way and then your boat is cutting through them at certain directions. And then the tiller is actually trying to guide your boat in a completely different direction or at least in one specific direction. And what's super interesting there is you have this ship, and it's going one way, and the current's going this way, and the waves are going this way, and then you have the wind that's going this way. So it was super easy, if you think about that, if you can just imagine that, it's super easy to get bumped just a little, and then a little, and then bumped a little more, and bumped a little bit more, until you end up going in completely the wrong direction. And remember, where you want to sail has absolutely nothing to do with where the ocean wants to take you. This metaphor here is kind of obvious, right? Life is bumpy. You can't think that you're just sort of like living neutrally through life, that you're just like everything around you is guiding you in this one sort of singular direction. No, we get bumped all the time. You lose a job, you end a relationship, maybe you, your house burns down or... Every once in a while, apparently, a global pandemic comes along, right? Like, all of these things are there bumping us off course. And you don't even have to, like, designate them as, like, evil forces, right? Like, obviously, we can say that the coronavirus is something that is heinous and sort of has affected the planet. And because of that, it has bumped a lot of our dreams off course. But even just the normal, everyday rhythms of everyday life are constantly bumping us. They're constantly sort of putting the hitch in our tiller so that it's difficult to just stay on course. And in these moments, it's easy for the, even the most important thing in your life to get sidelined. Paul, again, is helpful here. He says this in Ephesians 4. 
14 and 15, he says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Finally, in Moby Dick, Herman Melville says to not get distracted by that artificial fire. Now, this is kind of like a huge symbol all throughout uh, Moby Dick. Uh, and in this scene, Ishmael is actually sort of, he's steering the ship. He's on that, like, you know, really bad watch that you don't want in the middle of the night. And he's steering. While this is happening, they actually have a fireplace on the ship, which I know sounds really bougie, but it's actually terrifying and dangerous if you think about it. They're on a wooden ship, but they have this fireplace right in the middle. And what what would happen, he said, is he's sort of like there in the middle of the night, and the boat is swaying. He's got the tiller in one hand, right? He's trying to keep an eye on the compass. He's trying to go in the right direction. And instead of, like, using the stars for navigation, or instead of just waiting for the sun, which is sort of the end of that quote that he's trying to get to, Instead, he starts staring into the fire. He starts looking at sort of like the uh, fire of the little fireplace that they have right in front of him. And as he's doing it, he starts sort of like slipping further and further into that, watching it a little bit more. If you've ever been around a campfire as a child or maybe as a very distracted adult like myself, you understand this impulse, right? Like you ever stared into a fire and like 10 minutes later, you're like, whoa, where, where am I, right? Like you feel like a bug in one of those blue light zappers, like you really are just going to fall right into the fire. So this is kind of like what he's warning about here. He's saying, while you are trying to drive this boat, don't get distracted by an artificial fire. It's not the sun. It's not actually there to guide you. I feel like for us in Christianity, this is sort of one of those things that are sort of, you know, like Christianity or a part of Christianity, but are not really the true gospel, right? Like, isn't it super easy to get distracted by good things, things that are like the gospel, but aren't exactly it? Like, maybe it's really, really easy to do some sort of deep dive on the Enneagram. Like, that's more fun. And, you know, that becomes more of like a gospel for us than actually following the gospel. Maybe it's even more fun to sort of turn the Bible into a textbook and to dive so deep into it and find all, all these little like secrets and, you know, nooks and crannies to learn all this stuff that you can turn it into almost like this puzzle that you have to put it together. Maybe the artificial fire is some of the sort of Christian-y, but also kind of self-helpy stuff that we like to mix in with our Christianity. And I'm not trying to say that any of these things are bad. In fact, I think a lot of them are good. But I will just say it's really, really simple and really, really easy to get sucked into that artificial fire and to actually lose sight on the things that are most important. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. The author of Hebrews is writing to these people and he's saying, you have got to pay extremely close attention to this gospel, to this good news that you have heard, or else you will drift away. You will drift away. I wonder as you think through that, like maybe even because it's really easy to sort of listen to a sermon and think to yourself like, oh, you know, he did a good job or a bad job. Or you're like, oh, he never should have went down this Moby Dick rabbit trail. And you might be right there. I'm regretting it. Uh, 
Or you might just be thinking to yourself, like, yeah, I have seen some of those people. I know those people that are too Enneagram into it, right? Like, I know those people who have drifted away for whatever reason. And it's easy that entire time to not even think a little bit about yourself. But I wonder if I could invite you to take just one small moment and ask yourself, like, if, as you look back on your life, especially as everything has been upended over the past few months, have you drifted away at all? Are you still as closely attached to this gospel, to this good news that you had heard as you always were? As you drift away, do you find that it's because you lose sight of what's important, that you turn your back on the compass? Is that kind of, is that kind of what sort of, what trap you tend to fall into, the way in which you tend to drift? Is it tough for you to stay focused on the gospel while all these other things are moving around you? Maybe you've just experienced like a significant bump. Maybe you've actually hit a bump that has like hitched your tiller so profoundly that it's difficult to reset yourself back on course. Or maybe you've been drawn in by the artificial fire. Maybe you've been sort of coerced slowly and subtly off course by something that seems like the good news of Jesus but isn't really. So the question is, how, how do we pay much closer attention to what we have heard? I'm going to try and wrap it up and just leave you, leave you with this very simple idea and this simple thing that I think has transformed my life that I, I practice regularly. And that is that we, each and every one of you, must preach the gospel to yourselves. We must preach the gospel to ourselves regularly in season and out of season. Whenever we face anything in life is an appropriate and good and healthy time to preach the gospel to ourselves. And you may think to yourself like, okay, well, if the gospel is just that, you know, Jesus died for my sins and rose from the grave on the third day and uh, any who believe in him would uh, experience eternal life, you're right, that is the gospel and that is the heart of the gospel. But I think to better be able to understand how we can preach this gospel to ourselves, this has to become a much larger message than just sort of the facts of the case, right? The simple truth is that God loves you and that Jesus gave his life for you. That we cannot earn it. That at one point we were enslaved to sin and now we are free in Christ. And that he is better than all this world has to offer. So preaching that regularly to yourself means that when you get into a certain situation, when you find yourself going in a direction in life, and you want to sort of reset your compass, you want to get back on the right track, the solution is always going to be found in that simple message of the gospel. The solution is always going to be found in the truth of the gospel. So you're in a situation where everything's falling apart around you. The simple truth is that God has a plan for your life. And that the climax of all human history was not this thing that is happening to you right now, but it was a thing that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Are you feeling left out? Are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling abandoned by the people who should care about you the most? The truth is that there is a God who's the God of the universe who created everything and loves you more than you could ever possibly understand or imagine. We see that love most profoundly through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
is maybe you're you're sitting there and you're thinking about your life, you're processing, and you're saying like, my life is just not headed in the right direction. It's not it's not going in the direction that I always wanted it to go. The truth here again is in the gospel. That your direction was always set by a kind and loving God who is in control over the entire universe. And maybe, maybe, just maybe your life is not heading in the right direction because it's not heading in his direction. It is headed in a direction that you are trying to set and you are trying to establish. We as believers can only... Avoid this drift by paying much closer attention and by even preaching regularly to ourselves the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your Son. God, we thank you that you gave your life for ours. God, that while we were yet sinners, while we were in opposition to you, while we were facing off against you, God, that you came down to save us, to give your life for us. God, we thank you for that. And we ask that you, God, you would step in, that, that even though you have given us this good gift, that it is still so easy to drift away. So easy to get distracted, so easy to get off course, God. We pray that you would realign us, that you would guide us back to your good news, to your truth, to your gospel. Lord, order our steps. Bring us back to you. Help us not to drift away from the good news that we have heard. God, we love you. I thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.